first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Sometimes people will ask me, like, Motherlode, what's your favorite interview that you've ever done? Or, like, who's your favorite guest? And that is such a difficult unfair question because I've had an amazing opportunity to form so many lasting relationships, you know, on the show. It's like picking between your children, really like, who do you love the most? And obviously, you know, some people become closer than others and everything. And I think you guys know who the, like the, the really close ones are, the, the recurring guests that, you know, we, we feature over and over and over again, but Today's guest is, you know, just one of those great people that I truly, truly admire and had a f- just fantastic time. Like, you know, when you meet someone and they, you know, are like you in a different life, you know, they, he, this is just a guy who's on a path that I very much see, you know, similar to my own in many ways, just in terms of, you know, philosophies and, uh, thought processes and, you know, how our brains work. And, you know, so MK Schmidt is on the show today and I had a fantastic time. We, um, are promoting his new game, Paradox Vector. If you didn't see it at Realms Deep, it is a really cool, uh, retro shooter and it's got these fantastic graphics that are just going to blow your fucking mind when you take a look at it, you know, vector graphics and everything. But, Man, what a what a cool conversation. I can't wait to share it with you, but uh before I do, music this week is from the original soundtrack to Paradox Vector. It is a amazing procedurally generated track actually made in MK Schmidt's game which is called Anomalies. And yeah, you got to check that one out too, but let's let the music play and you'll very soon be in the keep with MK Schmidt. Thank you. 
do you manage to do literally anything at all uh, with seven children? I'm uh, married. Uh, so my wife, um, we actually homeschool also, just to add to the, the chaos. And um, she does handle the brunt of that. Uh, but I do fill in from time to time and do other things with them. Um, it is challenging, for sure. And it helps that I am a freelance artist. So my time is pretty flexible. Um, I get up early in the morning, usually, to get work done as much as possible before they start emerging. And, you know. Um, but they're pretty good. I think we have a pretty good routine. And, you know, I'll definitely occasionally just have to run upstairs and sort things out from time to time. But um, it's not so bad. It's not as bad as it sounds. They Having more kids, actually, I've noticed they play together a lot. You, you can kind of mm -hmm. leave them alone and they're, they're fine. They don't, they don't uh, need their parents all the time, you know. Yeah, they police each other. They do. They do, for yeah. the most part. But. How old are they? Yeah, I mentioned um, my oldest is 19, so she's attending college. And our youngest is one and a half. And we've got two to three years between everybody. So mm -hmm. uh, they're pretty evenly spaced. Um, so I, too, am one of seven. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. I fall somewhere in the middle of the group. Uh, okay. This is not, not like your situation. These are... There's multiple divorces and remarriages involved in this uh, oh, wow. conglomerate of children. But yeah, so I had like an interesting dynamic of being the oldest when I was at home with my mother. But when I would visit mm. my dad, I would be in the square in the middle. So I have two I younger see. brothers and a, an older sister and older brother. Interesting. I know, but I, yeah. I think what you say is true that we do police ourselves like you can immediately when you say I have seven kids running around in my house. It sounds like yeah. absolute chaos. But as you said, yeah. So what, how does that, um, cause you said you're an artist and yeah. when you say, so do you paint, do you sculpt? What, I, what's your, medium? I do, um, a lot of different things, but mainly painting as far as the fine arts mm -hmm. are concerned. I did actually attend, uh, school for sculpture at first. And I actually went into toy sculpting for a time, um, as a career. And then I started getting into digital and, you know, uh, learning about computers and stuff, uh, which is all pretty much after college. Like I had a computer, but I didn't do much art on it prior to, you know, 1998 or so. So once I learned about how to manipulate, you know, uh, computer graphics and stuff, I kind of I saw the benefit of that, and I saw that's kind of where things were heading um, professionally. Uh, although I think there's certainly still a need for physical, you know, traditional artists out there, but it wasn't too long before I found out about uh, Game Maker, which was the first game engine I started using back in like 1999 or so. Yeah, but I still do paint. They're usually small, sort of intricate artworks. I haven't done any too recently. I think I finished a couple earlier in the year, but I've been focused on games uh, since then. So it's hard to switch back and forth 
but when I'm yeah. finished with this game, I'll probably spend a long time not doing games for a while. That happens. So let's go back to your childhood. What made you an artist? Um, well, I'm, I'm the middle child of three. Mm-hmm. And I think my mom always encouraged me to be an artist. Like I would draw like a potato and she'd be like, wow, that's amazing. You know, you're the best, like I'm putting it on the fridge and I'm like, Hey, this is fun. I can draw potatoes and get all this recognition and <laughs> uh, attention. So I kept doing it and I enjoyed it too. You know, I don't think it, I think they talk about uh, nature versus nurture with these things. I mm-hmm. think there's a combination that needs to happen. I think a lot of people have an innate sort of skill or joy that they get out of that. And some people probably don't. But then you also need an environment where that's encouraged and and sort of uh, at least tolerated, right? Uh, some people will love doing art, but their parents will be against it for whatever reason. So they might not get the chance to really explore it. I I was fortunate to have both of those. I enjoyed doing it, and I ha- I was encouraged to do it. So here I am. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny that you say that it has to be a combination between the two. I, I 100% agree with you. Mm. I, um, I grew up around, like, one of my best friends growing up was a, like, virtuoso oboist so shout out to Iza if if you ever happen to listen to this but Iza went to a interlochen are you familiar with the school art school no i'm not so last two years of high school Iza spent like a couple of years there and it was really amazing because when they came back from school there was all this talk about like um amongst high art you know students at that time people would say like oh you're so talented mm. and the response was always like um talent anybody can have talent you can be born with talent but when you say like oh you're very talented at that particular you know venue or whatever it is that you do whether that be yeah. sports or art or any idiom medium you choose people will say that and and to me it almost when you say someone is talented and you equate all of their hard work to just that talent, it mm. takes away all of the hard work, you know? Yeah, like, I, I guess it could be. Obviously it's intended as a compliment. Like there's no, I, I'm not, I'm not going to throw that in someone's face. And be like, F you, you shouldn't say that. <laughs> but, I mean, right. There, there has to be, you know, both. There has to be the initial pre- predisposition to have an affinity towards pursuing something and then there has to be the actual pursuit otherwise you you won't ever really amount to anything so for in in your case yeah you, know, you have some artistic talent that your mother fostered and you have the drive also to still do things though you have a family and other obligations in your life sure you know that it, it's sort of uh it's not always easy to to do that obviously but Mm-hmm. I enjoy the the challenge of it, and the enjoy the outcomes of having produced something uh, like a finished product that that I can show people and people can enjoy. So, having played uh, Paradox Vector uh, and knowing now that you are into the fine arts, I'm assuming you're a, a fan of MC Escher. Yeah, yeah, and this also goes back to my mom. 
very, very young age. She was taking a college course and it was, the whole course was about one book called Birtel Escher Bach, which is a, it's a very, I've, I've read the book and I still don't know what it's about, to be honest. <laughs> it's like, it's exploring the mathematical principles between the mathematician Gertel mm -hmm. and then the musician Bach, composer, and the artist M.C. Escher and how they kind of dealt with similar topics in a different ways, you know? Yeah. And just, I would just look through the book and look at the pictures of Escher's artwork back then. And I must've been like four or five years old. Uh, and I was just fascinated because he could make something that was impossible exist, you know? Um, and that was just, I couldn't get my mind around it. And it's always been with me in that way. Uh, I've, I've got calendars of his work and books. And I read his book that he wrote about his art. And that was just fascinating. I was really surprised when I read that he he didn't really like the, the 3D impossible geometry art as much as he liked the patterns that he would work on also. Mm -hmm. uh, like that was his real passion was making those interlocking patterns. And I was always a little disappointed by that, like, cause I was more into his 3d impossible stuff, but you know, everybody's, everybody's different. Right. But it was always in the back of my mind to make a game using that. And I always assumed it would be 2d. Right. Cause that seems his, his work was 2d. And I think when monument Valley came out, I, realize like they did it way better than I could have ever done it. <laughs> so then I started thinking more 3D and I was working on this vector art game and it was just going to be about shooting robots. Very simple, something you could have played in an arcade in the 80s. Uh, that was my initial plan. But then the idea to make it sort of impossible and surreal uh, worked into there. And I thought that it would be a neat mixture of two two different genres, you know, yeah. and that's, that's basically what happened. What's so cool about it. I mean, the, the non-Euclidean portion of it is very interesting and it really only like truly becomes apparent in like the last section of the game, like how much has been going on that maybe you haven't noticed all the way along, at least mm -hmm. from my playthrough, but it just, the, the game is very impressive. Just, knowing that you made it by yourself with no one's help, you know? Uh, did you have uh, other people that you were, like, referring to? Do you have a, an internal group of I, I am a, or I'm an outside outsider artist, I think, in that yeah. sense. I don't have this community, and it's something I feel like I'm missing out on. You've got a community living in your house. Sure, sure. Yeah, my kids, <laughs> yeah. I have to pay them to play my games. They're like, your games are boring, Dad. We like Roblox. Wow. They like Roblox. What can I do? Yeah. So I, I don't have that, unfortunately. I, I, I feel like I'm missing out because of that. Recently, I've joined into some game jams. And I think Discord is actually a really great place, actually, for finding people that have mm -hmm. similar, you know, uh, interests. And this, I think it was you that initially invited me to the 3D Realms realms deep conference and that that's mm -hmm. been a an amazing experience just because there's so many other 
people uh, working on first-person shooters. A lot of them are solo devs like me. And so I, I do feel like I found a little bit of a, a community here, which I didn't have before. I think, um, you know, most of my real-life friends are not game developers. They're not even into playing games. So I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, we definitely share interests, but just not this interest. So finding some other people with the same experiences and, and um, goals is really good. Yeah, is when when Fred asked me to do this, I I didn't really anticipate it because I, the initial pitch was just like, hey, let's like find some indie games and like we'll just put all their trailers in the you know I think I told you for, first and foremost like we're just gonna do like B roll of like the trailers between the actual event and everything and right. it became so much more than that. Yeah, I was I was actually I was shocked at how how much prominence you guys gave to the the smaller games. That was great. Sorry to interrupt you. Never apologize to me. I don't deserve it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he said like, just pick games that you think are good like indie games. And I was like, fuck yeah. Like of course. And so I had seen paradox vector, I think on Twitter or something like that. And I was just like, I loved the graphical style and I, mm-hmm. and, and I saw like the, you know, non-Euclidean and all this kind of shit. And I had a, a really good friend uh, who I work with, a uh, fellow meteorologist guy. And he's like a, I'm more of like a, I draw frontal charts you know so i'm like an artist kind of mindset he's like a mathematician he you know he really does like he sits there and just does fucking algebra for fun all day Mm. and and i sent it to him i was like you gotta check this game out it looks like right up your alley and you know we were just mind blown by it and i've had such a great time exploring it but i actually had not gotten a chance to buy it and play it until we were like well into like I had already invited you. I was just like I just I know the I know that anybody who could put this together and make this look this good has enough substance that I'm not going to worry about it. Which was a bet. Like I I flipped a coin on you and I was sure. right. And no, so thank I you. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, but since then I've played literally all of your shit and it's cool. all amazing. Thank you so much. Um. So what got you into the first person shooter genre? I didn't actually get into them till fairly late. I didn't have a PC. I was a, a Mac guy up until maybe 2000 uh, or 1998. I think I remember we, I got my first PC and it was very, it was a, you know, potato. So I didn't even, and I didn't even think of playing games back then because games for me were more consoles. We had a Nintendo uh, console back then. But then it was Doom 3, actually. When Doom 3 came out and I saw that, I was like, what the heck? Prior to that, 3D games that I played would be uh, RPGs. We did have a Nintendo, but I also had an Apple II. And I played a lot of RPGs on there. So those were first person in the sense that you could see this 3D maze. Might and Magic was my favorite. Bard's Tale 1 and 2 and 3 were great. Mm -hmm. And I spent hours and hours, you know, drawing the little maps that you had to draw to, to know what the heck you were doing. And and I, I remember having dreams back then of like, maybe one day there'll be a game that's 3D that you can actually kind of move around in. And maybe it won't just have the same wall texture repeated over and over and over again. Maybe it'll have different, you know, different textures. And you could slowly see the development of that happening. 
But then when Doom 3 came, and I was I was at Micro Center uh, computer store, and I saw they had it on display. I was just like, <laughs> like wow, wow, like this is my dream come true in a way. More of a nightmare in that case, but it was uh, just visually, I couldn't believe it. And I had a computer, and I downloaded the demo, and it was it was playing at like 15, 10, 15 frames per second. <laughs> but I was like, no, I, I want to play this game. I played through the demo at, at that, and that was actually a very terrifying experience because it was kind of like having a strobe light mm. uh, in the dark <laughs> with demons. <laughs> I, so I that had its own, yeah. Uh, but I knew I like I have to upgrade my computer and, and play this because this is amazing and and terrifying and it really scared me. It still scares me. I think it's still one of the scariest games out there. And then I started going back in time and I played Quake Two, and that that was fantastic. You know that was like more fun, less scary, and more just action based. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Quake One eventually, and, and you know I loved those older uh, style games, uh, just because they didn't they didn't have this I don't know what you'd call it this heavy handed approach to storytelling that a lot of the games have now. And you know, growing up with an Atari, there was no storytelling. You know, the game was the story. You know, there was there was no cutscenes, and we got like. Uh, an Xbox for our kids, and we played through, I think, Gears of War and Gears of War 2, which were cool games in their own right. But, like, I just remember, like, holding the controller and, like, why can't I control my gun? Why do I have to wait for this phone call or whatever it is that they're talking through? I don't care about that. (laughs) I just want to play. So, you know, I don't want to make games where... I I like the old-school approach where it's just gameplay. And if there's any story, you'll let the game tell the story. I have this sort of built in as a as a design approach, I think. And that's a challenge too, because if you do want to tell more more complex story, you kind of have to figure out a way to do that without breaking the immersion, right? Uh, and I think a lot of games don't do that these days. It's you have to stop, you have to wait, you have to go through this discussion or menu or or read all this stuff and that that doesn't uh, appeal to me too much it's funny that you kind of joined from doom 3 because so yeah doom 3 was a very strange um approach to that genre period at the time it was a huge huge leap in terms of like what an engine could do and what you know what what graphics could look like and everything. Yeah. And unfortunately it was like overshadowed because it came out sort of in tandem with half-life two. Right. And half-life was the first game that really did that. Like the first first person shooter, I should say that like popularized the idea where, you know, you have these like long sections where you can't really do much. And to right. be fair to half-life, at least it, even in the, you know, not really cutscenes, but the parts where you really can't, you know, do much of anything, you still had control of your character. So you can turn the camera, you can walk around, you could pull out a gun and shoot the guy who's talking to you if you if you right. really want to or whatever. But and then I loved Half-Life That was the, too, the beginning of sure. this. Yeah. I, I didn't play it till much later, though. 
So yeah, but mm-hmm. I think they handled it really well actually in there. You didn't lose control of your character. And right. I think it was the story was interesting enough and, and they kept it I guess short enough that it didn't become annoying. Uh yeah, I I think he, just keeping like I said, you can go into more detail and have more interesting stories, but you have to handle it in a way where it's right. not it's not like game breaking you know it doesn't it never broke the immersion like you said you, you still had control of your character so yeah i i think they handled it much better than a lot of games do but your your philosophy about like uh you know i don't want to have this cutscene part i just want to like you know as a solo developer making making cutscenes yeah. like that it seems way too time consuming you know for me to do it alone i think i'm sure they had a pretty big team working on half-life 2 they they could handle those things. They had voice yeah. actors. They had all that stuff. So that philosophy is quite in tune with you know most of what I've covered. Like it's okay that, per, for my personal belief. I'm not against you know a, a short little something or whatever to advance the story, but like yeah. in general, like I agree with you 100. percent I want to control the character. I want to feel like I'm playing a game the whole time. I don't want to. Right. I want to play games. I don't want to watch movies. I, I separate the two. If I want to watch a movie, I'll go watch one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I actually like Doom Three is actually a pretty good example of where they did break the immersion like that. But they had mm-hmm. that, you know, you would kind of the camera would go into the guy's head, and you, it, it, yeah, they did it in a creative way. And the cutscenes were not too long. I don't remember them being too long. There was way more gameplay than than cutscenes, and that's something you see later. Kind of the cutscenes start taking over sometimes. So there's always a balance, right? Yeah. Um, if the gameplay is good enough, I'll sit, I'll sit through the cutscenes. I, I did with Gears of War. I liked those games. I think we played the first two of them. Uh, but yeah, it just got annoying at times. Like, but it wasn't like I'm going to turn it off. There were some old school games that were fully focused on gameplay that were much worse, right? <laughs> uh, I just remember the... Um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the Nintendo. There was a yeah. point at which I, I literally, actually, yeah, it's sitting over there. I have that. <laughs> I threw the controller at the when when you're in the hallway with Shredder, and I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, can't take it anymore. It became impossible to to. I never looked back. That game's worth a lot of money now. Like if you, have it, really? I don't have it in a box, but if you have it in a box, it's it's like. Wow, I can't believe how much people will pay for that. Interesting. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is like the one of the stupidest ideas that ever happened. Like, <laughs> just the name of it, just or, right, yeah. right there off the bat. Right. Just in general, like just the concept of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, yeah. Let's just throw something at the. I I know it's like someone told me it, it was a metaphor for something really uh, philosophical that I okay. surely don't understand and can't recall right now. But regardless, but uh. All named after a famous artist, so I guess that's your tie to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember when the comic came out, and I wasn't into comics mm-hmm. at all. I was, I don't know if this is widespread, but there's an assumption that nerdy or geeky people are into kind of the same types of things, but I was into Dungeons and Dragons very, very deeply, and I didn't have time for comics. <laughs> right? I had friends who liked comics, but they generally didn't play role-playing games they were more 
into the comic. So there was a divide, at least where I was concerned. Uh, maybe that's not universal. But no, I had friends who, who got into the comics. They had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I kind of saw it emerging as this kind of, you know, it was a very small scale thing in the beginning. And then it got the cartoon, you know, and then the video games. And so, uh, and I think I wasn't really ever into it that deeply. You know, I didn't, as I said, I didn't get into comics. I didn't watch the show very often. But the game, I, I did try to win it, and I thought this should be winnable. And they got, I got to that point, and I just remember I could never do it. And I tried it many, many, many times, and it never happened. And I think it was probably one of those things, looking back, where you had to buy a Nintendo Power magazine to know what the heck to do. <laughs> but I, I could be wrong about that. Maybe I just wasn't fast enough or something but i remember throwing the controller so when when did you decide like i'd like to start messing around and creating oh yeah yeah late late 90s i okay i'd always loved playing video games and i would always have ideas for video games Mm -hmm. and i remember filling sketchbooks full of my ideas and stuff castlevania was a big one back then Mm -hmm. i have like whole maps of castlevania levels and stuff that I just drew on graph paper with the thought of, Hey, maybe one day I'll make something like this. Never really planning on it or intending it, but someone mentioned game maker studio. It wasn't called the game maker studio. It was just game maker back then. Mm-hmm. But when I saw that and how easy it was to just drag and drop, you know, your, your code, like coding to me was a, a mystery. I had done a little bit of basic back in high school. And I understood it, but I never really got into it. But when I saw that dragging and dropping of code, that visually was very easy to to comprehend. And after like a tutorial or two, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. And I made a bunch of games, never really finished any. but And then 3D Game Studio became the thing for me. I think it was A6, A5 or A6 when I first encountered that. And then I bought the commercial license early 2000s, maybe 2001 or two. And I haven't looked back. I've tried other engines like Unity. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, C Sharp, I don't get it. You know, I can kind of, I can use it, but I don't want to. Like, I can kind of think in the language I'm using. It's called Light C. I will know exactly how to do something if I have an idea. Whereas C-sharp seems way too abstract for me. Like you have to go through all these different levels of accessing objects. And I can just write a variable and change it anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is, I know it's... I'm very much the same. It's bad uh, form for programming. But as long as you do that, you know, extra step of making sure it doesn't get screwed up somewhere. Uh, and that does happen occasionally. You can you can really write spaghetti code with, with light C. But um, until something happens to Windows that makes it unplayable, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep using it. Yeah, I'm very much the same in that I 
once I've learned how to use a, a specific tool, like even if somebody's like, Oh, there's a better way or whatever. I, I just, yeah. I don't even hear them. I'm just like, uh, yeah. I, I know what, how to use this. Like I, I can still work with, with, you know, I have my workflow down like this, right. this works for me. So like, why would I, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's my way of looking at it. Yeah. And, and but you lose out on some things like I can't do anti-aliasing and have certain shaders operating at the same time, you know, like, They've resolved some problems re- more recently that DirectX 9 couldn't handle for whatever right. reason. So, but if you're making old fashioned looking games, it doesn't really uh, pose a problem so much. It's actually kind of a feature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with Paradox Vector, just, you know, first of all, like just how it looks and everything, but how you manage to tell the story, you know, just strictly through gameplay and some very subtle text. Yeah. You know, all the way through. And yeah, that was a, I wanted to have some, story. I, I didn't miss anti-aliasing. I, I wasn't looking for right. like, Oh, why was it? You know, you know, whatever. Some people do. I added it as an option, but it does darken the game a lot. I'm getting, I'm trying to figure out if I can brighten it up in anti-aliasing mode. Uh, because I have shaders that kind of emphasize some of the lines. Uh, mm-hmm. But they don't work if I have it on anti-alias. So, looking for a workaround for that, but I don't know if it will happen. But yeah, the the story and the the lore that I included, I wanted to make it optional, right? Like you don't need to read all that right. stuff. And I made one or two lines of of lore, you know, given at a time, just to give it some kind of background environment. Uh, and then there's a few occasions where a little window will pop up and tell you, you know, the, the story. Uh, but it's literally like maybe five sentences, you know, max at a time. But it's it's well, not. I quite enjoyed it. Like okay, yeah. Like I I felt myself, even though it's not, you know, as you said, it's only a couple of sentences here and there. Like. I want to know what, 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 why are these people, uh, you know, controlled yeah. or whatever, you know, I don't, I can't even, at the, if you asked me right now to tell you what the story of Paradox Vector was, like, I really don't know. I just felt compelled and I guess sure. that's what's important. Yeah, I, it, it is important. I think I don't want to downplay yeah. the importance of story. Like it is an important aspect of gameplay. Um, how it's done and how it's introduced is a big factor though. And I wanted to keep it, as easy as possible, but not neglected at the same time. So one one gameplay aspect that we can't go without um addressing is that every single enemy seems to explode and cause damage. <laughs> which is <laughs> so like counterintuitive to the way that I play. I, I I'm a big Doom guy and like, okay. like like Doom Two Yeah, th- this is a totally different animal enemy wise. Okay. Oh I'm interested to hear that. I didn't I guess yeah, that um, they do all explode, don't they? Yeah, pretty much. Yes. If you're if you're too close to them, they will they will damage you. Uh, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I did. In- I decided that at some point. I just haven't thought about it much since then. Yeah. Yeah, you'll. I mean, if you were to talk to me for long enough, you'd. I'm not a critical person. Like I, I would be a terrible critic. I'm 
if anybody's listening to this and they think like, oh, they think of me as a critic, you should just get that out of your head right now. I just <laughs> like things and I talk about things that I like. And if I don't like things, I'll usually have very poor reasoning. It's like it made me feel not good or right. you know, some, something really <laughs> not not well thought out. Um, Fair enough. No, but like I, I thought that was an interesting thing to have is like, okay, so all the enemies explode. So you find yourself in these situations where I, I recall one point in the game where I was um, – Standing in a, I guess it was like a vent shaft or something like that, and I had to drop down to fight one of the the larger enemies. Okay. And there's there's a couple of them in the room. And as I wanted to drop down, I couldn't because if I landed on the enemy, which was like line sighting me, then I would die because I had like six health or something really stupid. So it was the problem solving. Uh, became much more complicated. It's like, okay, I got to drop grenades down there, but if I, you know, I was trying to do it with rockets at first and I kept shooting the ledge with the rocket killing myself. <laughs> I, okay. So, I, yeah, it was just became, it became a very stimulating problem solving thing okay. for me. Yeah. Actually, I, think- I, I, I was able to just hit them with the grenades and then like kind of get them to, there's no getting them to back off, not with the AI you currently have anyway. Right. So it's like, um, I don't know. As I said, I have a very poor, poorly thought out opinion here. It's just I had fun doing it. Okay, that's that's good to hear. Uh, and I think that goes back to the days of Quake and Doom. Right. Like they weren't really merciful games, especially Quake. I remember that right. in particular. Like it would just here's like 15 enemies and you have 10 health, and I, we don't care. You have to figure it out, <laughs> right? And uh, I'm not saying that's great, but I don't mind. I didn't mind it. I, I I I welcomed the challenge, and they let you save the game, you know, as much as you needed to, which was kind of a workaround back then. I I try to. There's generally not areas where you have tons of enemies. There's there's a few. Not nearly as many as you'll find in most games. I think most first-person shooters. I I tried to balance fighting with exploration a mm-hmm. little bit more and and sort of like abstract problem solving. And that that's sort of the game I like to make, where it's not just about shooting stuff. I enjoy the combat, but I also I think it goes. It may be worth mentioning that like the stalker games are my favorite. Yeah, probably my favorite of all time. Um, and that was a lot of quiet exploration, you know, with punctuated by these very intense firefights. Uh, and I just loved that, the surprise of it, right? And I think Doom 3 did it well right in the beginning where you had that long intro where you're just walking through the base and suddenly the, you know, the demons show up. And that kind of uh, transition from quiet to, to hectic. I think that's a, it's a nice thing to have. If it's constant fighting, I, I can enjoy a game like that, but it, not as much. When, when, that's when there's some you know, exploration and, and time to reflect, I guess. No, generally speaking, because like, um, I, I got into this genre more from the like, multiplayer PvP scene, okay. and then, like it's only... Within the past couple of years, that I've really like delved into the 
like okay single player aspect of it I see. and i've grown to really like it but i talk to people all the time who you know have played a million times they've played you know doom and quake and all all of the games that we're discussing here and i notice in other people that they have this very strong um sense of you know pattern recognition mm. and they can they can like oh well you it's really easy to fight the enemies because you can notice that they do things in a certain way and all that and for for a reason i seem to struggle with that and i'm really good at thinking like a human being like that's right. what i've noticed like i can put myself in the head of another person and predict what they're going to do but with enemy like, in you know ai just doesn't for whatever reason melt into my brain mm. with uh paradox vector in particular the the enemies don't feel like this like force that i have to like fight necessarily they feel more like part of the puzzle with the exception mm. of the factory level which we can talk about later but sure. they just feel like oh, okay this is a, another obstacle in the puzzle that i have to figure out how to deal with less so than it is like a my brain doesn't go into like fight or flight mode when I meet one. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation because, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a tremendous AI, you know, uh, mm. enthusiast or that's not my strength, I suppose. Uh, right. Right. I I can manage some things, but yeah, there's there's games where the AI is much more intricate and they have multiple different, and I, I kind of did that in Star Explorers, my other game, uh, where I had different states. Trust me, you know? we're we are going to talk about Star Explorers. Oh, okay, so sure, sure. I got to sell your current game first. Yeah, but I, I I did recently add new drones that have a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the tentacle ones. No, these are the green. They used to look like Daleks from Doctor Who. They oh like, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. big trash cans that drove around. Uh, they now have little legs and a little round head with an eye. And if they spot you, they will sh- fire at you now, and then they'll back backtrack a bit mm-hmm. to go behind a corner or something. So they, you know, they're kind of dodging you now. They're not just going on their robots. Their path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're a little more intelligent, more um, interactive. And they're a little harder to kill now. So I'm hoping that uh, people appreciate that more. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if the combat is the, the selling feature of this game. I tried to make it fun, but I have limits as a, as a programmer, of course, that, that I meet up with. But the newer ones are a little more interesting, I think. I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking about Doom 2016 now. Yeah. For some reason, I, that was a that was all about the fighting, right? It was just like these big environments were almost more like arenas than than yeah. anything else, and you you just had this big arena fight, right? That uh, Hugo Martin, his he's the lead designer on those games, and yeah. that's like his that seems to be his I'll say forte. Um, because Doom 2016 and Doom Eternal, especially Doom Eternal, yeah, are entirely based around combat. But as as I was kind of saying earlier about Paradox Vector, it's like the you have this idea of like okay, exploration is important and all that. They are to- especially Doom Eternal. Man, I can't say it enough. Is like totally centered around 
it doesn't feel to me like combat in the sense that like I'm a guy walking around with a gun who's going to shoot some enemies. It's yeah. like the combat itself is the puzzle. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I sensed that in 2016 too. I haven't played eternal. Um, don't I, do, do play it. Yeah. I want, I'm interested to hear what you say. Okay. I'll have to buy it first. And that, that may be some time coming, but and it, okay. I liked 2016, but I didn't love it. It wasn't like, to me, I liked Doom Three better mm-hmm. because because of that mechanic where you had you had to like you know interact with those computers and figure out which combination of you know, how to open the safes. I like that kind of exploration and and figuring out puzzle solving stuff. The combat was fun in Doom twenty sixteen, but it felt fun. It didn't feel like a horror game, right? It it was more just combat. I didn't feel scared at any time during that game. And I, I kind of like that that sense of oh my god, what's going to happen? In Doom 2016, you knew what was going to happen. There was going to be a bunch of demons you're going to fight them. Like, there was no mystery. <laughs> uh, but it was very well yeah. done. Very well done. And I, I think the combat in there, I could. it's definitely good combat. Like solid combat. And I think I as a game designer, I can learn from that for sure. But I, I would always want to balance it with with that sense of exploration. Yeah, I think that Doom 2016 is about as about as close to perfect as like a first person shooter's combat in in this kind of genre could be. Yeah. Um, with the balance of like you know the melee and the glory kills, and then also mm. the actual, I I'm a big fan of Doom 2016. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you when you do get around to playing Doom Eternal, I, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on it because it's like totally reinvented the wheel in terms okay. of how combat works. It, it there's an intuitive part of the brain. Uh, I think this may be my grounding in realism because you know though these games are totally unrealistic in in many other aspects like. I expect that when I shoot a rocket, it does a certain amount of damage and that a person or a thing being shot by a rocket will react in a certain way. Sure. Doom Eternal is all about like ammo management and approach, I guess. Okay. So you can't really make those types of predictions as well. It's okay. it's more about like, uh, as I said, solving a combat based puzzle. Um, Interesting. While moving very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's a time for those intense moments, but I, for me, it's just not the whole game. Like I need, I need to have some quiet time, my me time. You know, like in, I remember in Stalker, I would just go around taking pictures of stuff, you know, taking screenshots, and just like, wow, that sunset is beautiful. Like I need to capture that, and yeah. well, look at the way the light is going into that old factory, whatever. And there were also times when I was kind of like, I felt like I lived in that place, you know, like, oh, I have to go get some food because I'm hungry. <laughs> you know, they just left out the bathroom, thankfully. Yeah, I don't think and that's become. And... Yeah, uh, I think some of the mods added sleeping, which I, I played yeah. a bunch of those. But um, I just remember like moments where I would be out in the rain and I could see like a one of those big. Uh, chimera enemies they were like very dangerous mutants but i saw them like way in the distance and i had my sights on them i was like you yeah, know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna stand here and, and 
watch this guy, see what he does. You know, because there was an interesting AI aspect to that game too. It wasn't just about fighting enemies. Sometimes you'd see them fighting each other and you didn't get involved, right? It was this, it was more of a world building type thing. And I, I don't think I've experienced that in any other game where I just felt like I, I kind of lived in this place, you know? Uh, that was very interesting to me. I don't think Paradox Vector does that. I didn't really, that was supposed to be, like I said, it was supposed to be kind of an arcade game. It got a little yeah. more than that, but uh, it doesn't have that world building sense as much. Considering how, I mean, objectively, this is not an opinion. This is like, Stalker Shadows of Chernobyl is one of like the jankiest games ever. Like it has so many <laughs> glaring issues. Didn't. And yet, it's like there's so you're like probably number five or six, like so many yeah. designers who find themselves in this, you know, on this podcast, like disproportionately say Stalker is my favorite game ever. Like David mm -hmm. Szymanski from Dusk, that's his favorite game for sure. And yeah. there's a few, other, they're not all coming to my head right now, but like I, I've had so many people sit here and tell me like, there's just there's something about the atmosphere of this game that makes it their favorite game ever, which is to me beautiful. Because mm. as I said earlier, I'm not a very critical person. It's all, it's very much about feeling to me. And there are games that I love, like that other people are like, oh, that game sucks because of this, this, and that reason. I'm like, well, it doesn't mean it was really good at what it was trying to accomplish. Right, you know? right. Yeah, That's and, and Stalker definitely had, had the bugs you're talking about. And mm -hmm. I think yeah, if, if you were, uh, I played through it, bugs and all, but then I, I found out, you know, there's modders out there who fixed 99% mm -hmm. of those. So I play through it again. And um, I think there's still strengths that the original version had that some of the mods lost, especially some of the balancing the weapons and stuff. But um, yeah. I think it was, like you said, the atmosphere of that game, I think it's the big draw. It's not, it's not the combat. The combat is good, but that's, that's not its main strength. It's about exploring and, and atmosphere. And the I think the thing that really got me first time I played it, actually the first time I played it, I played it for like 20 minutes. I was like, yeah, this is an interesting kind of RPG first person shooter. But then Left for Dead came out. And that absorbed me for about a good month and a half. Like that's all I played. But then I remember going back and going, okay, let me try that stalker again. Almost didn't play it again. Right. And I just remember exploring this old farmhouse and pulling out my flashlight. And the just the way the flashlight worked and how it kind of cast shadows, it hit me like, wow, this is actually a very realistic sort of rendering yeah. thing. And then the night time came, right? And I was like, okay, there's a day and night cycle happening here. I'm I'm not just playing a game anymore. I'm in a I'm in a world. And then the next day came and it was sunny. Right? The, the first day of playing that game, it's cloudy. I don't know if it's always like that, but for me it was cloudy. So none of the lighting and uh, you know shadows and all the things that make it beautiful were apparent on that first day. The second day it was sunny and it was like shadows are being and you saw the shadows move as the sun moved through the sky. It was just, wow, I was blown away by that. 
and uh, I'd never seen that before. And that was one of the things, as we're going to talk about Star Explorers, I was like, I need that in my game. <laughs> that has to happen. But um, just the, the way they set up that environment and the atmosphere, and then the rainy days and sunny days and those lightning storms and the the, uh, the blowouts that they added uh, in the second and third games. Just an amazing kind of variety of things that could kill you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but once once you knew what to look for, you knew how to protect yourself. So it was almost like this organic learning about that environment that happened. That it, it was working on many different levels that most games, even if they look amazing and they they have amazing combat, they don't work on all those levels. You know? And that's like the example of, of Doom or like I played one of the Call of Duty games once. I couldn't get too far in it. It wasn't it just didn't speak to me in that yeah. in that same way. You know? It was just like follow these orders. And I know as a as far as mechanics and probably programming and stability, yeah, it's a better built game from that technical aspect. And I understand why people want that experience of playing a game and it not crashing, you know. And so, but sometimes the experiment, the audacious sort of, uh, audacious isn't the word I'm looking for, the ambitious project is more interesting as a designer and as a player for me. Uh, and Stalker tried to do things. It didn't succeed everywhere, but it tried to do things that I think nobody had done before. And that's what made it stand out. I mean, ideally, you have both, right? Of like course, a, of course. You ha- in an ideal dev team, you have like a, a Steve Stalker Jobs too. and a Steve Wozniak. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. You, or you, you have like a John Romero and a John Carmack. You have one right. one guy who can really execute in terms of like the engine part of it and like making it like all the programming work seamlessly and then you have another guy who can really make a compelling game right uh, right. from an artistic and ambition standpoint but if you remove the art and just have the you know a plain old awesome beautiful game engine yeah and try to sell that to me i couldn't be less interested but i could name like a, a squintillion games or you know just for anything artistic endeavor whatever where they don't have the technical prowess but they do have the art and the ambition and it's so compelling that i can ignore yeah. you know the bad parts of it like the evil dead comes to mind like maybe they didn't have the budget maybe they didn't have like the best you know cinematography team in the world mm. but i could tell they really cared yeah yeah and, I, and it I, made one of my favorite movies ever yeah i i loved evil dead 2 when it came out i didn't know about the first one mm-hmm. until later but uh Man, that was, I saw it in the theater, and I saw it with a friend, and I was expecting a horror movie, which I got, mm-hmm. but I, I never laughed so much in my life, you know? Like, it was hysterical, yeah. uh, and I don't, I don't know, that's a hard balance to draw. Like, things can be funny, and things can be violent, and it's very rare when they're made in such a way that they can be both. Yeah. A lot of times they overstep one or the other and it goes too far in one way or the other and it doesn't 
it doesn't work. But they just like, wow, they got it right on that one. The scene that like made me realize at first, like, oh, this is actually a very funny movie, is when he goes into the basement and he starts walking backwards. <laughs> into the, like, I don't know what the heck he was thinking. <laughs> like, what? Why would you walk backwards if you're looking for monsters? You know, like, yeah, it's just it's so dumb, but it's so it's, it's impossible to explain why I thought that was so funny. I just I couldn't stop giggling at that point. I mean, I, I like I just watched um, the Disaster Artist. Have you ever seen that film? I have not. No. So it is um, it is essentially a biopic of the people behind the movie The Room, which was okay. objectively like most people say like worst movie of all, like Troll Two is probably another one, but like one yeah. of the worst movies ever made, and yet it's a huge hit because exactly what we were just talking about, like how it's so bad that you can't not laugh at it. Okay. And and it's charming because it's a movie where you know Tommy Wiseau, the guy who made it, was had essentially no real talent. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to be an actor, he wanted to be a director, sure. but he was bad. But with enough money and enough passion and ambition, he did make a movie, and it is hilarious. Like, yeah. Yeah. not intentionally, maybe, but like it's you can't ignore that. And if you had. I can name a million movies for you, like every Michael Bay movie that are yeah. just soulless, like perfect cinematography, perfect 3D graphics, perfect, you know, good actors, everything all the way down the line, but just they don't have that sense of like soul to them. I agree. Know? Yeah. yeah. That, that's a hard yeah. thing to muster up. Right. That's that's art, I think, and it's it's core and it's yes, almost indefinable. Like what made it that way? You know, and I totally agree with you as far as Michael Bay. And he's not the only one. I mean, he's a guy. He's doing his job. He's doing a good job. He's people watch the movies. They love them. Like there's no shortage of money coming out of those pictures. But from my perspective, I barely watch Transformers or. I think my, my brother-in-law dragged me out to Transformers 2 and I was just like, oh, why did I come here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I liked Transformers growing up, but it just, it's one of those things like they tried to make it appeal to an adult audience, you know, but it's a kid's, yeah. it's really a kid's movie in the sense that this is about transforming robots. And they, I don't, maybe some people liked that, but I just felt like that was a big miss they're appealing to two parts of my brain that are not meant to be accessed Correct. at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's talk about your, to me, I've played all of your games. I've played rocket blasters, I've played paradox vector. I even played anomalies, but I didn't okay. really understand what I was supposed to do. Sure. But, Star Explorers is the best $5 I've spent in years. Wow. And I mean, thank you. It, that was such, such an amazing experience, dude. Uh, I, I would be absolutely disappointed to have gone through my life, not played that game and then find out <laughs> on my deathbed that you should have done that. <laughs> wow. No, that's, uh, that's actually very meaningful for me. I feel like that's been my passion project for, many years now mm-hmm. and it's still at the top of my mind and I have to force myself not to work on it 
because I have another game I have to finish. But I write down all my ideas and I have sketches and, and things of mm-hmm. what I plan to do with it. And let me talk about its origin because I think that's that's for me that's like such an important part of it. And it's it's kind of it got lost in the because of the fact that a game like No Man's Sky came out right before my game came out. And I started it in 2013. And I thought, I literally thought, like, I invented this genre, right? And it turns out I didn't. Uh, You know, there was Elite, which was a procedurally generated space exploration game. There was Mm -hmm. Noctis, which was a procedurally generated space exploration game. I didn't know about those. And I didn't know about No Man's Sky. So when that was announced, it was like, wow, like they really, I didn't think anything of uh, any idea that they, they stole the idea from me or anything like that. But I knew as soon as my game came out, people would think, oh, they, he's cloning No Man's Sky. So it was like a, a thorn in my side, even though I, I ended up playing that game and enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, so it, there's no way to remove that from reality now, right? <laughs> do you know, do you know of a way? <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it, that's the reality of it. I, I had the idea, started working on it. No Man's Sky came out and I was like, ah, oh, they got my idea first. What can you do? But I, I had a, a choice to make then. I was like, I'm, my initial was, uh, reaction was like, okay, I'll stop making my game. Then I thought about it. I was like, I'm enjoying this. I, I enjoyed working on it. I was having ideas, putting them into action and seeing the result and enjoying that process. No, you know what? As long as I enjoy making this, I'm going to keep doing it. And four years later, I released it on Steam. It got approved when Greenlight was still alive. So, yeah. And then it was a terrible, terrible, terrible game back then. And I feel bad for the people who played it in the early access stage because it had like major major bugs. You know, like you'd play it for a while and then for whatever reason, your whole galaxy map stopped working properly. And yeah, I felt really bad because, yeah, solo dev making a procedural space generation game. But I fixed those bugs, mostly. It's one of those things where, as I play through it, I always have in my mind that one man had a dream and made this game. Like, mm-hmm. And it's atmospherically so perfect to, for me. I, I don't know about other people, people listening to this, if you, you know, form your own opinions. But like for me, it's like, I was totally compelled by this game. Like, as you know, while I was playing it, I had to stop and go on a vacation. Like, I had taken, you know, leave from work. I took my wife to the mountains, and I was like, I didn't take my computer or anything with me, and I was like, I have to to know what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, the mountains are beautiful. The mountains are... We go there quite often in Colorado. But... They're nothing compared to outer space. <laughs> well, it, it it was my attempt to take the ideas and atmosphere of Stalker and mm-hmm. put it in a space game. 
And it, it, it actually kind of came out of three different things. Um, Minecraft, believe it or not. Minecraft, for me, I played it for like very intensely for like two weeks. And I loved it for those two weeks. And it just introduced me to that idea of you can procedurally generate a landscape, right? Yeah. That was super intriguing. I'm sure other games have done it, but that was my first real uh, uh, introduction to that idea. And then I remember at the time I was watching all the Star Trek episodes on Netflix. I grew up with Star Trek. I loved Star Trek, but I never really sat down and, you know, consistently watched through the whole series. Uh, and I did them all. I did Next Generation. I'd never watched Deep Space Nine before, but I, I watched that whole one. I watched Voyager. Uh, then I went and actually watched the original series. And then I started Next Generation again because, you know, you can't get enough of that. Uh, What's your favorite one is Next Generation? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Characters and, yeah. and setting and everything. I, I did also watch Enterprise, which wasn't as bad as my initial reaction to it, but yeah, it, it's not my favorite. Um, my, uh, I, I'm personally animated series. That's my favorite. Oh, okay. Star Trek. The old one. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah I didn't. Yeah, 1970s Star Trek animated series. How how many seasons of that were there? I think there's like only a couple, okay. but it's like um, it's the same you know characters and many yeah. of the same voice actors as the original series. Um, but because it's animated, they're not limited by scenery, you know? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember it when it was out back. back. I was born in 72, so I do remember the Star Trek cartoon. Just, I don't remember anything about it, like, episode-wise. But, and I don't think I watched more than a couple times, to be honest. But, yeah. Is that around? Can you get that these days? Uh, I think I watched it on Netflix. I could be okay. wrong here, but I'm, I'm sure you could grab it for a few bucks I'll, somewhere, Amazon or something like that. But. I'll check it out. Yeah. But so yeah. Star Trek, Minecraft, Stalker are, were kind of the triangle of my existence at that time. And that's where Star Explorers was born, right? Like If I can procedurally generate different planets, right? And then they can all have that day and night cycle and kind of different sort of features that you have to explore and, and navigate. So working with different levels, like in Stalker, you know, uh, it's not just going to be about combat. There will be combat, but, and maybe, maybe there's not enough. I don't know, but um, I think people like it where it is combat wise. I don't think anyone complained yeah. that there's not enough. I do. But, okay. I do. Yeah. And it, it's just, um, just figuring out how to do that was the challenge back then. Uh, but once I got like a working version of the planet generator, I was like, okay, yeah, this, this could happen. This could actually be uh, a thing. And I just remember um, the hardest part was getting a database to work, where, where when you visit a star, when you scan it, it enters it into the ship's database, right? Mm -hmm. And, but before that, there's nothing. Like, there's an empty square, you know? Uh, and then once you visit each star, they populate that, that 3D map. 
and getting that to work it, it was such an abstract thing because I'm an artist, I'm a visual guy, and this was all abstract. This is all like I wasn't producing a visual. Actually, the, the 3D map came later, and that actually helped me because it was visual. Before, it was going to be just um, text, right? Mm -hmm. You have a list of sectors, and then you click on that, and then you'll have a list of stars, and then you click on a star, and you'll have the list of planets. It was just a database, and just getting that to work was the hardest my brain has ever worked. <laughs> and I, I still don't know why that is. You know, that's like it's it's not a visual thing. I think it's just it's just putting information in a in a database. It doesn't seem like it should be hard, but it was. There are like three particular kind of pillars of this game that really just make it for me. Um, sure. The first one is the survival aspect and that you have to like manage resources and, you know, like, because I was very dangerously close to uh, just running out of fuel and dying. Right. And I, I just happened on some magnesium crystals at that point. And so I oh, survived. Like, but you that, were lucky. That part of it, because I, yeah, but that part of it was so, um, I don't know, just interesting to me. And then, because I, I usually don't play games like that, right? Like, I usually play like games like Doom, where I'm just like, I'm just going to run in here and fucking shoot everything and like yeah. come whatever may. And, and then, um, second pillar for me is the wonderfully pornographic uh, voice acting. <laughs> I okay. I had a... I had a fantastic time. Uh, I was streaming the game just for some friends, and we were all, but you know, really into it. And I got onto a planet because I found out pretty quickly. Like, I don't have to have any of these suit upgrades. I'm just going to land on that planet, and I'll run back to the ship when I need sure. to heal. And and which is <laughs> hilarious. But you know, you have the guy, and he's just like, oh, <laughs> oh, it's it's so hot. Oh, I really shouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> we were having the best time. Okay. It's like, I really got to go. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was I, I love that aspect of it too. No, no, I appreciate that. I was intentionally trying to sound like I was an overacting mm -hmm. like character, kind of Captain Kirkish. I hope mm -hmm. it didn't come across as obscene in any way, but I suppose no, it's could, just hilarious. you can read it that way. <laughs> It's it's um, charming. It's what it is. Like, appreciate that. No, um, you show it to a bunch of twenty-year-old men; they're gonna say porn. Okay. You show it to a kid; they're gonna think it's just cool. Like, yeah. it's fine. It's it's like the Shakespeare or The Simpsons. Like, sure, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah. That came actually kind of later in the development, where I wanted to add something that just. Uh, personalized it a bit right mm -hmm. uh yeah i apologize for my voice acting black I, th I think acting. it's great i i literally <laughs> love it i um, was also the computer voice originally but i hired yeah. a, a voice actress to do the computer uh just because it, it became a little obnoxious to hear me all the time right <laughs> it was she hurting did, she did my job. ears yeah, yeah, she did. She was great. It, There's, it, uh, you yeah. paid her for 
two lines? Uh, no, there's a bunch of lines. Um, so there's a warning planet contains surface hazards. Yeah. Proceed with caution. Yeah. And then there's, uh, you know, proceed to the docking. The hangar bay. bay if I'm uh, there's like yeah. um, solar engines engaged. Uh, oh, warp okay. engine. Okay. Right. There's a bunch of different things. Fuel okay. fuel level is low, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm following now. 15, 15, 20 different things, I think, that she says, uh, depending on the circumstances. Maybe 15 would be the max. I, I don't have okay. the number on the top of my head. Was that the second pillar? I want to hear the third pillar. The third, the third pillar, which is the polar opposite of the, as I said, pornographic sounding voice acting. Oh, okay. The polar opposite of that is the loading. The loading screens are like oh. so inspiring. Um, interesting. I, I loved your. It, it it says a lot about you, like what these quotes read. You know. Okay. Like I, I can tell that from going through the the each of those loading screens, and I was excited to see each new one that how well read you are and how much thought you really put into it and how much it meant to you. Um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I felt they, they made me feel connected to you as an artist and it was really, there's so many good ones in there. There's, you know, there's a uh, Dr. Spock, I believe is in one of them. And there's Carl Sagan. There's so many people that I admire growing up. Cause I was a huge science nerd when I was a kid and not from like a, I'm going to go learn how to do physics and math and shit, but just like, I, I'm bewildered by it. And, yeah. you know, Neil Tyson's, uh, remake of cosmos was so such a big part of me and i just loved it man and yeah. even some that i had never heard of you had socrates in there it's beautiful i wanted to get uh, uh the widest variety of quotes that i could get about space about exploration one of the i just happen to have this sitting here uh <laughs> yeah isaac asimov yeah he He's an amazing guy. I, I encountered like 15 of his nonfiction books. It's like collections mm -hmm. of his articles at the used bookstore. And this was after I had started Star Explorers. Like this is maybe 2015. And I bought them all up, which is like, I want to read these. And I started reading them. I was like blown away by his ability to explain space and the, the science behind these discoveries and stuff in a way that me, you know, as a non-scientist can appreciate and understand. And um, I think his books gave me the inspiration, like, I want to put some quotes in these loading screens because, you know, loading screens, they're not, they're not our favorite things generally. Well, well but that's the thing is that you, if you have to have a loading screen, there's yeah. the loading screen that's just like a, a decal, you right. know, or a picture and then like loading. And then there's one that sends me on this like path of thought that like <laughs> I want to continue to complete before I have to get back to the game, you know? Yeah. So one and of it's my so simple, very simple. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, one of my things, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a, I believe in, in the existence of God and, but I'm also deeply into science. I don't mm -hmm. think they have to contradict each other. I think there's a way to understand science and there's a way to understand religion that is, you know, congruent. And that's sort of a, maybe a deeper passion of mine than that. My art is a way of exploring, you know, and this is 
this game is sort of that in a nutshell. And the quotes I chose, you'll see there's some from religious scriptures, different ones. There's yeah. like the Bhagavad Gita. I really enjoyed the, the Psalms and a lot of yeah. stuff. We're, yeah. you're, you're on the same path as me, but you're much smarter and 20 years older. That's... <laughs> I, I, I hope, I, I'm surprised that you mentioned the loading screens. I thought you were talking about the pictures. But the quotes, yeah, I, I put it. I did put a lot of thought into it. I'm surprised anyone actually reads them, and that makes me very happy, because yeah, those are. It was fun to find those. A lot of them, like you said, I'm very well read. I, a lot of that was just me googling, you know, stuff, which, um, I guess there's a skill and art to googling, right? <laughs> to <laughs> got to know what to look for. To me, well read does not imply that you read a lot of books necessarily. It it means that you put a lot of thought into things. I okay. don't know why. I, Maybe I should pick a different phrase for that, but that's what I meant. Like, um, I mean, a, a phrase like I'm very into uh, mythology uh, myself <laughs> and uh, religious scripture and it just not from any particular background, just that right. I'm interested in how knowledge is passed down through generations. And and I think that's sort of something that's kind of lost on my and especially the immediately following generation in terms of like respect for wisdom. Okay. Um, and so that's been my like over the past little while, like my huge obsession and yeah. phrases like um, a simple phrase, like the, the, Earth is too fragile a basket for the human race to keep all of its eggs in, mm. right? Is so perfectly cryptic. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you mentioned Asimov and like he have you ever read uh he, he had a short story called, um, shit. It ends with "Let there be light." I can't remember the name of it. Oh, interesting. I haven't. Uh, I haven't Asimov. read deeply. The, la into his... the last question. It's called the last question. Yep. I, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. You are about to receive it. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. It is. He was a, a genius at mixing science and mythology, right? Like, right. And th this particular short story, uh, I don't want to spoil it. I've already told you what the ending is, unfortunately. <laughs> it I, I look forward it's to it. It's the journey. It's not, it's not the destination. Oh, yeah. It's in your inbox now. And awesome. He, I will check it out tells the basically like from now to or you know now when he was writing it to the end of time yeah. in a few pages like I think I think it's 18 pages or something like that it's wow. it's nothing too complicated but but through the art of mythology through the art of like uh not you know you, instead of getting mulling on details you give an idea that is meant to be read several times and interpreted right. um this is what we get with uh uh, the poetic eddas right they, these are they they read like stories like okay you know thor um did this thing or loki did this thing and you could read it very literally and that's one way to look at it but if you actually look deeper into it these are you know all fairy tales work the same way there's a lesson to be told here that has nothing to do with what you're actually reading much of what the poetic eddas are about is a, a, essentially a fertility cult right like oh, okay. how to make a baby here is how but without spelling it out for you we're going to give you something that it will you know 
make right. it a little more dressed and pass it over through from gener- generation to generation. Um, and I, I look at most te- like n- not just spiritual stuff, but just like most older stories in the same way. Like um, I look at the legend of King Arthur in a very similar way. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I'm sorry. I went on a whole fucking tangent there. No, no, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I love exploring literature and discussing it in general. I, I haven't read a lot of Asimov, his fiction. I think I've read more of his nonfiction at this point. But um, what I have read is actually really, really good. I'm reading through the Lucky Star series, which are kind of like pulp novels. Um, Perfect. Yeah, yeah, which is great. And he wrote them under the name Paul French. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're just about this guy. He's on the science council and he, he problem solves around the solar system. So there's one on Venus and there's one on Mars and there's one in the asteroids. Uh, they're really fun. But um, And then his robots, of course, he's, I think, most famous for. I think he coined the phrase robotics, to be honest, to be, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, right. So that's this, pretty. This comes from the. The Polish word for slave, I believe, right? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Robot. Robot. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so he he always fascinated me. Uh, and I'm... He's got so much, you know, so much work out there that it's almost like... I tend to buy books used. So when I encounter one, I'll buy it. But I, I generally don't just go order a whole bunch of books at the same time you know i'd like to yeah come across them <laughs> uh i totally understand yeah yeah like yeah. same i i don't i don't want people to like give me a list of things that i have to like hold to i just right. want to go on the journey of life and find what i find on the way i i put in a few lovecraft quotes in there i don't know if you saw those uh, trust me i saw them all <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh he's he's always an interesting guy to enjoy we're big fans of lovecraft here i kind of figured i kind of figured so interesting character but uh and i like his sort of take on the universe as this kind of cold unforgiving place right it's it's not even unforgiving it's like doesn't care at all about humans right and it seems negative but I don't, I don't read it that way. I kind of read it like you, you make your own existence here, right? You have to yes. forge yeah. your own existence here as much as you can. And I don't think that's incongruent with belief in a, in a divine right, power either. It's sort of, it, I see it as a test. Like we're here, we have this universe, we can do what we want here. We can get caught up on earth and get, all into our problems and end up blowing each other up. That could happen. Or we can kind of learn to live together and come together and decide, hey, there's a whole universe out there. Why don't we see what else is out there? You know, like we kind of have to do that collectively as a human race, I think. And that's to me, like, that's a test for us as a species in a way. Yeah. Right, it's not just an individual uh, issue at that point. We kind of have to collectively decide 
let's let's enjoy this existence rather than <laughs> murdering each other over it. This so. actually reminds me of um, something from the King Arthur mythos. Yeah. Enough. And in T.H. White's um, The Once and Future King, right? Uh, I think it's like the third to last chapter of The Sword in the Stone. Okay. Merlin is uh, finishing educating King Arthur, like in a, you know, a formal sense. And he sends him, he said, I want you to go talk to the, the wisest animal that I know, which is the badger. And so he turns him into a badger and sends him to the woods. And, um, you know, I'm going to summarize it and not dull you with the details, but he he goes and talks to Mr. Badger who, and and all Badger has to tell him is like, I've wrote a, a, a dissertation for my doctorate about why man is the king of the animals. Right. And the story essentially boils down to, um, you know, on in the seven days God had to make the earth. Mm. He basically he, you know, he makes all the animals and he tells them, okay, we're going to take a couple of days here and each of you gets to choose a, a trait. So if you want to change part of your body to be like a shovel so you can be really good at digging or if you want to have a, a, a different mouth that you could be really good at, you know, eating or pecking or whatever. And it's like a several, you know, I think it's, forgive me for if I'm misquoting the Bible here, but like fifth and sixth days he spends doing this. Okay. And then uh, man is the last animal to choose. And all the other animals have chosen their traits. You know, this is, so this could be interpreted one of two ways or probably many different ways, but like, a, you know, you could go with the, the evolutionary, this is a, this is a metaphor for evolution, which sure. I like, or you could say like, literally this happened, you know, right. God created all the animals in two days. Fine. Either way, I, however you get to the, the point of this story is fine. And then ma- man is the last to choose. So man says, um, I choose not to change myself because I want to exist as you created me. You created me in your image. And why would I want to change that? Right. Interesting. And God says, congratulations, all you other animals. Man has passed the test. And he okay. will have domain. He will remain this fleshy, vulnerable creature. But because of that, he will have the ability to create mm-hmm. as I do. And, you know, and create tools and manipulate the environment. Mm-hmm. And that is our talent. You know, yeah. That's why we're on top. Man, I'm just saying sorry, animals, but like, you know, <laughs> we're winning right now. <laughs> well, unless we uh, extinguish each other in the process which is that that freedom that we have the minds that we were endowed with you know it's 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 spider-man it's with great power comes great responsibility ultimately correct we 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 can achieve a lot or we could end up literally blowing up our whole planet you know (laughs) kind of a double-edged sword so well, the, the same minds that are doing things like that, you know, the same animal, the same species that are doing these, you know, heinous, destructive things. Yeah. Uh, on the other end of that spectrum, there's people like yourself who are saying, like, maybe right. we should go to outer space and we should, right. you know, because it's about survival. It's not about, like, being perfect. It's about, like, if we mm-hmm. expand to other, you know, planets and other solar systems and galaxies and such forth, then 
we will ensure the progeny of the human race. Yeah, I think uh, um, Elon Musk, I have a quote from him talking about, I think you said it better though, the, the putting all our eggs in one basket thing. That was, was that Carl Sagan, I think? I don't remember. It's one of your quotes from your game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't remember who said it though. Think, but, but that's that's the idea. Like, yeah, we're we're all on one rock. There's so many other rocks, right? Um, they're not all, all as hospitable. But if we worked together to get further, you know, we might find other hospitable places. Mm-hmm. I feel like on, on the one hand, this is fantasy, right? And it's it's wishful thinking, but l- literally we can we could go there if we put our efforts into it. It might take a few years, uh, maybe a couple lifetimes, but we could get to Alpha Centauri, you know, physically right now if we put it uh, put it together. Financially, we just had enough magnesium crystals, right? Right, yeah, you need those. Um, financially, I think the challenge is like one country probably couldn't do it by itself. Mm-hmm. I think the whole world would kind of have to get on board with that and say, "Let's don't let's put some resources into this collectively," and then we might actually achieve it. But that takes a, a decision, right? That takes a uh, a will. I have pump. no doubt in my mind that the the collective human consciousness is capable of engineering our way out of any problem when we are threatened. So when everyone feels threatened, so like in a few years when, you know, the, the whole sky is orange, like it is in California right now. Yeah. Yeah. When the whole world is like that, people are going to get really serious about, we need to get off this planet. It's it's not going to work and it won't be everyone. Sorry, but like a few an elect elite few will definitely solve the issue yeah. for themselves. Yeah. And hopefully that leads to uh, the transpermia of the human race. That would be I'm nice. drinking beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm on a different level here, but yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm like truly honored to have gotten to speak with you. Thank you for, for having me on the, on the show. Is it a show? Uh, episode. Um, it's whatever. It's whatever you want it to be, man. Okay. It's it's just the keep. <laughs> yeah. I uh, p- people always ask me like, it, do, is there a plan to this or like, you know, how did you get it? all by accident? I just, I'm not an audio engineer. I'm just a guy who found himself with a really great group of people and mm-hmm. was obsessed enough with a particular part of video games that I started talking to people and I found them so interesting yeah. that now I'm here talking to you and it's been an amazing journey. Yeah. I, so uh, uh, I'm glad you are having this journey and I'm playing a part in it. I, uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future for whatever it is that you do, man. I sure. enjoy all of your stuff, even anomalies though. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with it. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, there's, Everything. there's like a demo up on the, on the steam page that kind of talks mm-hmm. you through the menu and stuff. If you, okay. if you ever feel like exploring that a little further, but it, yeah, it doesn't really have a point more of a, it was an experimental project. It actually yeah. was another thing that came out of star explorers where I was trying to get the nebulas to form in a random 
looking way. And I didn't want to totally destroy my game by experimenting too much with it. So I made a separate program to try to do that. And I figured once mm -hmm. I had it figured out, I would just carry that back in, which I did. But that separate program kind of started growing on its own. And I, I didn't have a goal in mind. I just would have an idea and say, I wonder if I can have them wiggle or I wonder if I can have them make sounds. You know, whatever it was I had the idea for, I would see if I could implement it. And if it worked, I would keep it. Uh, and if it didn't, I would just delete it. Uh, so it just evolved in this sort of random experimental way. And it is what it yeah. is. It's cool. I, I enjoyed the pretty pictures that I made. I just didn't understand what I was doing. I was just moving. That's all it is, around. right? Yeah, that's, okay. that's pretty much. That's pretty much it. Um, but the music it actually yeah, like, makes. I I, I yeah. took the music engine, and brought that into Star Explorers, and manipulated and changed it so it's it's a little more structured in Star Explorers. But I mm -hmm. took a lot of those songs that it made, and I brought those just as, as background music, into Paradox Vector. So the, the music you hear in Paradox Vector was all procedurally generated by anomalies. So that's so cool. I don't know if that helps. But yeah, that's what it is. The The response that I got from friends was like, this music is so like Minecraft. It's so like peaceful and just... Mm. It's... You know, in the cold darkness of, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's idea of outer space, it, it yeah. was very uh, nurturing and it didn't make me feel quite so cold. So, uh, some of the even later. Though you were shouting, oh, I'm so cold. <laughs> uh, yeah. Really, I, I really got to get back to the ship. It's, oh, much too cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would, I, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. I appreciate you, brother. Uh, as Paradox Vector continues to evolve, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to you taking your hiatus and uh, exploring other artistic endeavors. And when you do return to um, video games at some point, I look forward to that too. And we'll talk again for sure. You can come back anytime you want. It doesn't even have to be about video games. We'll just have you on the show. And if people don't like it, they can kiss my ass. How's that sound? <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you so much to MK Schmidt for joining us on the show this week. It was fantastic getting to know him, and I look forward to spending more time together in the future. Thank you again, as always, to our supporters uh, on Patreon. So Paul Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred. You are all amazing and greatly appreciated, and uh, we couldn't do what we do without you. So much love. If you would like to be part of that list, all you got to do is head over to inthekeep.com and then click on our support tab. There you'll find links to our Patreon, to our donation links, and also to our affiliate links. And uh, so go ahead and uh, check those out. We've got Amazon affiliation. You can uh, do your shopping through Amazon if you were going to do that anyway. You don't have to, but if you want to, or if you're going to, Make sure you shop through our link, and that way your uh, money doesn't all go to Jeff Bezos. Some of it comes back to the Drowned God, Katala. Maybe you're thinking about uh, starting your own podcast. I, uh, you know, Recently we did the, the thing with uh, Jamie from uh, Doom's Dead. 
featured his podcast. He's also known as Hate Daddy. Really good interview with uh, Russ King. But I spent a lot of time uh, answering his questions on like, how do you start a podcast? And one of the biggest things I said was, you got to do business with Buzzsprout. They're a fantastic place for you to manage and distribute your uh, show. So you can get it on iTunes, you know, Stitcher, Spotify, all that kind of shit very easily for a very nominal fee. If you sign up through our link, it will uh, be helping out the keep. We'll get a little kickback off that too. And lastly, if you are a big fat son bitch who just can't make yourself get up out of that chair and go to the fucking grocery store. Uh, I'm just kidding. But, you know, if, if you're a, you know, don't, don't want to go out in times like this, or maybe you're elderly and you, you don't want to expose yourself, we get it. Uh, Instacart will have your groceries there in as little as an hour. So if you go through our link again on the support tab, click on that Instacart bad boy right there. And uh, take yourself to their site, sign up, and bada bang, bada boom, you got yourself groceries delivered to the comfort of your own home. Lastly, as I mentioned before, head over to zensports.com, download their app, and when you do, make sure you use the promo code ITKPOD. This will help out with the uh, Pigeon Classic charity event, but also it will help to keep out, uh, you know, in the future as partners with uh, really amazing people doing really cool shit. So without any further ado, I bid thee farewell. Have a fantastic week. Uh, go go give somebody a hug. It'll make you feel better. I promise. Spread the love. I love you. The Drowned God Katala loves you. Till next time, stay in the keep. <laughs>